Would you pray again with me? Abba, you and I both know how unworthy I am to stand here and lift up your word. Lord, I stand, we all stand by grace alone. And I pray that despite my many shortcomings and my many deficiencies, you would still work. We know that your word is sufficient and that your spirit is sufficient to impress it upon our hearts. And so I pray that as I speak truth, if I speak truth, your spirit would take that truth and press it deep in our hearts and transform us and shape us into the men and women you want us to be. And if there's anything I speak that is foolish or wrong, that you would let it fall by the wayside and be forgotten. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified. Jesus, we are here for you. This is for you. We pray that you would be glorified. Amen. Church, it is a pleasure and a privilege to be with you this morning. A double pleasure and a triple privilege to see you in person. You have been welcomed back several times. I'm going to welcome you back again. It is so good to be here in person. Welcome back. This morning, as you may have read in our bulletin or in our emails, we are going to be speaking about prayer. And our text for this morning is Exodus chapter 33. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. So right near the beginning, 33, as you know, comes after 32. <laughs> if you would keep a finger in Exodus 33, we will be getting there very shortly. But our big idea this morning in speaking about prayer and at looking at, in looking at Moses' example for us, is that faithful, oh, nice, is that faithful intercession leads to a display of God's glory and mercy. When God's people are faithful to intercede, God's glory and mercy are put on display for a watching world. And so it is my pleasure to look at, at God's word with you this morning. Some of you, I think many of you now know us a little bit, and some of you not yet, and we're looking forward to getting you to know you, but those of you who know us know that we have worked in Africa for the last 10 or 15 years. We've had the privilege to work in different communities and different countries around Africa. And a few years ago, my wife, Lindsay, and I, and, and we only had a, a kid and a half at that time, the, the, the second half was born over there. Um, <laughs> We, we were living in Sudan, in North Africa, learning Arabic, getting to know our neighbors. And we had the privilege to get to know a young family right next door to us. And we were overjoyed when we heard, at one point, that they were pregnant. We rejoiced with them. We partied. We, we were so happy. Children are such a blessing in that culture. It's a culture of generosity and hospitality, and it's a culture that loves kids. But a couple of months later, we were brokenhearted to hear that they had had a miscarriage and they lost that little baby. And so we went to visit and we went to just sit with them and grieve and, and, and see how sorry we were and try to pray for them. 
And I was a little bit shocked when I saw their reaction to our attempt to comfort them. Anytime we would mention the baby and how sorry we were, their immediate response would be, Alhamdulillah, God be praised. And, and that seemed really weird to me because I knew they were sad. I knew they, they didn't want to lose this baby, yet they were praising God for the loss of a baby. How did that work out? And as we continued talking and as I continued getting to know them, what I saw in that culture is this powerful, overwhelming fatalism that rests on their hearts and their minds, on their worldview. God is sovereign. He is high. He is powerful. We believe this. We see this in the Bible. But unlike the God of the Bible, Allah is so distant, so far away from people. He will do what he will do. And, and people just at best can get out of the way and, and praise him and, and avoid being cursed. Like a locomotive charging through. No one wants to stand in the way of that locomotive. So you jump out of the way. So you don't become a pancake. Church, I suggest to you that that view of God is, we don't have to travel so far to see that. Yet what the Bible shows us is, is absolutely a God who is sovereign, a God who is, the doctrine is transcendent, who's high above, who is in charge of everything, and yet a God who cares, a God who draws near, a God who loves you and cares about the things in your heart. And based on that understanding of God rests our understanding of prayer. Because this God who is high and sovereign and powerful, He is a God who is unchanging. He is perfect. He has always been perfect. And He will always be perfect. His purposes do not change. His plans do not change. His character, His mercies, His perfections are always the same. And yet, in God's word, we see that sometimes God reacts differently when situations change. A great example of this is the book of Jonah. Josiah and I are studying the book of Jonah this summer. And in the book of Jonah, we see God reach out to a prophet and say to him, Go to Nineveh, this wicked city. Their evil has come up before me. And I'm going to destroy them. Go preach to them that their destruction is coming because of the evil way in which they have behaved. And now Jonah didn't want to go. You know the story. But God makes him go. He gets there. He preaches. And what happens next is the people are brokenhearted. They repent. And God reacts differently when that situation changes. He doesn't destroy Nineveh. We see this as well in a, in, a, in a text like Isaiah 58. Hezekiah was king of Judah in Isaiah 58. And the prophet Isaiah is sent to talk to, to King Hezekiah and to tell him to put his affairs in order because he is going to die. I'm so sorry, that wasn't 58, Isaiah 38. Because he's going to put, it, to put his affairs in order because he is going to die. And as soon as Isaiah tells him this, Hezekiah is, is bedridden, he's really sick, he turns to the wall and he pleads with God for mercy. He prays that God would have mercy on him. And while Isaiah is still leaving the palace, before he is out the door, the word of the Lord comes to Isaiah. And God sends Isaiah back to Hezekiah to say that God has heard Hezekiah's prayer 
and will give him another 15 years of life. And so we absolutely affirm with, with God's word that God is unchanging. His purposes, his plans, his perfections, his character do not change. He is, Wayne Grudem is a really smart guy. He's a professor. He wrote a tiny little book called A Systematic Theology. It's around 1,300 pages. Josiah has read it all. You can ask him questions. And, and in the systematic theology, he calls this the immutability of God. He is unchanging. And yet, as Grudem says, when circumstances change, and sometimes that takes 120,000 people, the population of Nineveh, repenting. And sometimes that takes one man praying. God reacts different, differently to different situations. And we see that beautifully in our text this morning, Exodus 33. And I suggest to you, church, that this is imperative for us to understand. Because if we don't understand this about how God behaves, how God treats his people, how God reacts and acts toward us as his people, we will not understand prayer. At best, our prayer lives will be anemic. And at worst, prayer will be a boring chore. And yet God's word calls us over and over and over again to be a people of prayer. He, Isaiah, again, speaking of the covenant to come, the covenant we live under, says that God's house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, not a house of great preaching, not a house of great worship. A house of prayer is what God's house will be known as. And we as God's people must be a people of prayer and seeing what God desires of his people when they pray and how God reacts to his people when they pray is imperative for us to understand. Christian, how is your prayer life? How is your prayer life? Our chapter in Exodus 33 is beyond the half point of the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, God powerfully saves his children. The children of Israel, the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham and Jacob and Isaac in between there. They have been in Egypt for 400 years. And Pharaoh, feeling threatened by how large this people has become, makes them slaves. And so they groan under this oppressive slavery of Pharaoh's. And God hears their groaning. He takes pity on them and he raises up Moses as a leader for them. And then through God's own outstretched powerful hand, he rescues them from Egypt. You, you may have seen the prince of Egypt. You may have read this in God's word. But his power is on display for the world to see. And the greatest superpower politically on earth at that time, which is Egypt is crushed like a ripe grape by the power of God. And so after rescuing them from Egypt, God brings out his people, around two million of them, through the desert to Mount Sinai, where he begins revealing more of himself to this nation of former slaves. And he brings them up to the mountain, and in a cloud with lightning and thunder, he appears before the people, 
And in chapter 20 of Exodus, he gives them the Ten Commandments that we know so well. And then after that, he calls Moses, Moses up to the mountain to receive further instructions. He's learning how to build a tabernacle that would become the precursor to the temple, which would allow God to dwell with man. And so choosing this people, God is now showing them how they, as a sinful people, can walk before holy God and be his special possession on the earth. And so Moses is gone for 40 days. He's up on the mountain with God. But sadly, the people don't do so well while he's gone. Maybe they got bored. Maybe they panic. Maybe they get impatient. But what they do is they come up to Aaron, Moses' brother, the high priest, and just 40 days or so after receiving the Ten Commandments, they ask him to build them an idol that they can worship as the God who brought them out of Egypt. So they don't break the first commandment, but they break the second. How human is that? Reminds me of myself. And so the people, Aaron makes this idol and the people worship and hold a festival to the Lord with an idol that is prohibited by the Lord. And this turns out to be disastrous. When the Lord hears of this, he is ready to destroy the people. And he tells Moses, he is so fed up with their idolatry and their hard-headedness, their stubbornness, that he is going to destroy them and start over with Moses through a new line of descendants for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But here we see the beginning of what we're going to be looking at. Because Moses doesn't go along with God's plan. Moses, he kind of stands in God's way and pushes back. And beginning in chapter 32 by appealing to God's character, to God's reputation before the Egyptians who saw him so powerfully rescue Israel and then will think he took them out to the desert just to destroy them. Appealing to God's nature and God's promises, Moses begins wrestling with God and pushing back against God's plan to destroy the people. And the amazing thing is that this sinful man prevails and God changes his plan. One faithful man interceding. Intercession just means going in between representing one side to another and the other side to the one. One faithful man changes the destiny of two million people who would have died in the desert. And that's where we pick up in, in chapter 33. Would you read with me the first six verses of Exodus chapter 33? The Lord said to Moses, depart Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. Some cultures wear black to mourn, some cultures shave their heads, some, some cultures tear their clothes and put ashes on their heads. In this culture, they took off their jewelry, any sign of outward adorning as a symbol of their mourning. 
But when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, onward. And so our first point this morning, church, the first thing we see in this passage of God's word is the seriousness of sin. The severity of sin before holy God cannot be taken lightly. Remember, this was God's special possession. This was God's holy people. In Exodus 19, he calls them to be a kingdom of priests to him. People who have access to him. And yet, their sin drives God to almost destroy them. Just touching on Grudem again. Grudem talks about the wrath of God and he defines it as God's intense hatred for sin. And this is such an important part of God's character. He hates sin intensely. So much so that this people is almost destroyed. And even when he relents from their destruction, his presence among them is threatened. What would have happened if God sent them into the promised land and didn't go himself? They would have faded into obscurity. They would have become just another nation with no connection to God, with no special purpose in his plans. They would have disappeared. We would never be reading this. Christians, you and I both know that our sin is paid for on the cross. God hates sin intensely, yet he loves sinners. You see my kids at the back, they're still young, and they're all looking at me now. <laughs> but say 10 years passed, and one of them began struggling with drugs, and drugs was destroying their body and their mind and their heart. I would imagine that I would still love the kid. I know I would still love that kid, but I would hate the drugs that are destroying this person that I love. And that is kind of how God feels about sin. Intense hatred. Christian, our sin has been paid for. God on the cross drank of the cup of his wrath. Justice was satisfied so that we would not have to bear the burden for the sin that we deserve to bear. And yet... Christian, the God that it almost destroyed us two million people is the same God we worship today. And he hates sin just as intensely. And sin is just as likely to destroy us if we become comfortable with it. Sin will trip you up, Christian. Sin will obscure your vision. Sin will cloud your judgment. Sin will hobble you as you try to run the race of faith. Hobbling is something they did to horses in olden days. They would tie their legs together so that they could graze freely, but they couldn't run away. They wouldn't get far. Try running a race with your legs tied together. It's impossible. And sin will do that to us. Christian, we must 
as God's people, we must be putting sin to death. Now, we have access to a grace that is so free in the throne of grace and, and through Jesus Christ. And yet, I can be so tempted to take that grace for granted. God intensely hates sin. And by his grace, may we be a people who hate our own sin, who do violence to it as we pursue the holiness that God desires for us. The severity of sin, the seriousness of sin before a holy God is our first point this morning. But maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're struggling with a besetting sin. And hearing me say this, you know this already, and this is not helpful at all to you. Maybe you've, you've struggled and you've wrestled and you've tried to shake this off and you can't. And brother, I feel, or sister, I feel your pain. God's word tells us that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have access to an ocean of grace. But in that chapter, in that verse, he also points us to living in the light, hiding our sin, living in the darkness with hidden sin, creates an atmosphere that sin can breed and multiply in like fungus. But bringing sin into the light destroys its power. Church, may we be a people who live in transparency, who confess our sins to God and to one another, who hold one another accountable, who encourage one another to sh sharpen one another, who pursue holiness with all of our hearts. The severity of sin cannot be understated before holy God. And so just as we see how serious sin is in these first six verses, let's read the next few. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. I'm going to repeat that last sentence. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Church, are you as shocked as I am that a holy God who intensely hates sin would be willing to stoop to such intimacy with a sinful man it baffles me but this is what we see in our text our second point this morning is the incredible importance of intimacy intimacy with god is a gift given to us by his grace and yet it is foundational 
in our understanding, for our understanding of prayer. In verse 7 of chapter 33, Moses writes, Moses wrote this account, Moses writes about people who sought the Lord. Now that's an interesting concept, isn't it? Because God is everywhere. Psalm 139 tells us there's nowhere we can go to hide from his presence. We can ascend on the wings of the dawn. We can settle on the far side of the sea. We can climb down to the depths or ascend to the heights. We cannot hide from him. So how do you seek, how do you search for someone whom you cannot hide from? And yet the consistent testimony of God's word is that there is a measure of God's presence. There is a measure of intimacy with God that is reserved, that is held back for those who will earnestly seek Him, those who hunger and thirst for Him, those who pant after Him as a deer pants for water. God reveals more of Himself. God somehow draws near, although He's already everywhere, to those who seek after him. There is intimacy with God that we can cultivate by our effort and our investment of time that is free, not given to everyone by default. Now we can read this and think Moses had some special dispensation. Moses had some special relationship with God. Actually, he did. <laughs> but in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks about this incident. He talks about Moses coming down with, from the gold, because of the golden calf and talking to the people. But in relating that to the church, he does not compare the church to the nation of Israel. He compares the church to Moses. Church, because of Christ's death on the cross for you and for me, we have access to the same intimacy that Moses had. We have access without veil, without curtain, without barrier into God's presence. We don't deserve it. This is ridiculous. And yet God is so gracious and so merciful that he gives this to us. And yet just as friends who must spend time together and do things together and serve together, just as spouses who must talk, who must hang out, who must, who must find fun things to do together, and they can grow in intimacy by doing things together so we can grow in intimacy with God. We can culture, uh, cultivate, nurture intimacy with God. And we do that by things you know already. We do that by spending time daily in his word, filling our mind, filling our thoughts with what he has revealed to us about himself. We do that by worship, regular time sitting at his feet and just lifting up our heart in praise and thanksgiving and adoration for the great God who has called us. We do that in prayer by just sitting at his feet and pouring out our hearts knowing that he is a God who cares, knowing that he is a God who loves us, who loves you, Christian. This is an investment of time. This is an investment of our energy. And yet I say to you, there is nothing on earth that compares to the reward that we receive when we pursue this investment. There is nothing on earth that is as sweet, nothing on earth that is as addictive, nothing on earth that is as rewarding as this intimacy 
that we are offered with God if we will cultivate it. And in fact, points one and two are really related. There was a, a really guy, smart guy a few hundred years ago named Thomas Chalmers who wrote a little book called, just blanked out on the title, called <laughs> The Expulsive Power of a Greater Affection. And Ta Chalmers talks in his book about how sometimes we are burdened, we, are, we feel tied to our sin. We have this affection that we don't like, that we want to break, but we can't break. And the way to break it, Chalmers talks, says, is by finding a greater affection, something that consumes you, that is even more wonderful. I first encountered this in Piper's writings, and Piper loves this guy. But think about this. When I was a teenager, I had a group of buddies, and we all hung out, and we played sports, basketball. We, we, we played um, computer games or Xbox or whatever. And one by one, they all started disappearing as they met a girl. And then another guy would met a, meet a girl. And another guy would meet a girl. And so we had this great time together. We had so much fun together. And then all of them started finding a greater affection, something greater to pursue, and disappeared. The previous draw just became nothing, it seemed like. The pleasures that we can have in intimacy with God there is nothing that sin can offer that compares to, compares to this. And there is no greater way to break sin's hold on our heart, on our mind, on our affections, than pursuing, cultivating, nurturing this greater affection. But it takes some time. It takes intentionality. It takes work. And yet... Its sweetness can be felt around. Do you see how the people would stand up when Moses would go into the tent? Do you see how Joshua would remain, linger, where he saw Moses commune with God in such sweetness? The people around us will be drawn to God when we cultivate this in our lives. The incredible importance of intimacy is our second point this morning after the seriousness of sin, our first point. But Moses doesn't stop at intimacy. He uses intimacy as a springboard, as a platform to go higher and deeper, which is an oxymoron. But let's continue reading here. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Intimacy with God is an end unto itself. It is a virtuous cycle. The more we have it, the more we hunger for it. But let's continue on the text here. Show me now your ways that I might know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. Remember how earlier in the chapter God said, this people that you brought out of Egypt and now Moses begins pushing back again. In the context of the seriousness of sin and he, Moses has a very high view of sin. And in the context of the intimacy that he has developed and nurtured with God, Moses pushes back when God tells him things. 
Consider too that this nation is your people. Verse 14, and he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he, Moses, said to him, the Lord, if your presence will not go up with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And so the context, the foundation that Moses is standing here is the closeness of his relationship with God. But with a serious view of sin and having developed this relationship with God, this intimacy, this closeness, what Moses does is use that as a foundation for prayer that prevails. Our third point this morning is the privilege of prevailing prayer. This is crazy. This is sinful man pushing back against holy God. Holy God who does know better. We know this. And sinful man getting his way. Now a few months ago, Brother Artur preached to us a powerful and beautiful message that touched my heart. And he spoke in that message. If you haven't listened to this, this will be like September, October. Go back and listen to it. It is so good. He spoke about streams of Christendom that, that tend to speak disrespectfully to God, almost if, as if God was our errand boy, demanding things from God. And this is not what we see in this text and not what we would ever advocate from God's word. Moses knows he is a beggar. He knows the power, the awesomeness of God. He has seen what God did to Egypt. He has seen God on the mountain in thunder and lightning. God, Moses comes to God as a beggar, as pleading, having nothing in his hands but God's promises and his knowledge of God's character. But Moses pleads with impunity and he prevails. This is incredible, church. Impunity is such an interesting word, isn't it? It's like impudence. It's like, it's an attitude that I don't want to see in my children. I would love for them, when I tell them to do something, to obey right away. When I tell them no, to accept it right away. But you know, in Luke chapter 11, after seeing Jesus pray, the disciples come to Jesus and ask them to teach them to pray. And the example Jesus gives the disciples is the example of a man who suddenly has a crisis, an emergency in the middle of the night. And he doesn't have what it takes to solve that emergency, but he knows his neighbor does. And so he goes to his neighbor's house, though it's rude, in the middle of the night, and he starts banging on that door and asking him for what he needs. And now the neighbor's in bed, the family's in bed, but the neighbor comes to the upstairs window and says, what are you doing? It's the middle of the night. Go home. Go to bed. I'll see what you need in the morning. But he is desperate. He has a need, and he bangs and bangs and bangs and bangs and bangs and bangs until that need is met. And that is the example that Jesus gives his disciples. That is the example that Jesus gives to you and to me of how we should pray. Impudence, the ESV talks about in Luke 11 and verse 8. The NIV translates that same word as shameless audacity. I love that translation. 
Jesus points to his disciples, calls them, calls us to pray with shameless audacity to come before the throne of God and bang for what we need. Knock on that door until the door is answered. But he promises the door will be answered. And Moses models this for us here. The people would have been destroyed if not for one faithful man who stood up to intercede and change the situation and caused God to react differently. The people would have been abandoned by God's presence if not for one faithful man who prayed and changed the situation and caused God to act different. And I see more than one faithful man and woman in this room. What could not God do through you, through us, as a praying church? I suggest to you, church, that God today desires to raise up intercessors. He desires men and women who standing on a foundation of a high view of sin, realizing the severity of sin, and also realizing that we can come to the throne of grace for mercy in time of need because of the cross. Men and women who will pursue intimacy with him and use that intimacy as a platform to plead for the dying people around us. In fact, a few hundred years after this, the descendants of this people, the nation of Israel, went on to adopt rebellion and disobedience. And they were disobedient again and again and again until God's patience was exhausted. And in speaking to the prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 22 of Ezekiel, he lists, God lists a long list of the sin of the people, of the rebellion, of the wickedness, of the idolatry. And then in verse 30 of chapter 22 of the book of Ezekiel, God says, And I looked everywhere for someone who'd stand in the gap. I looked everywhere for someone who would intercede for the people, but I found no one. That's the end of chapter 2 of Ezekiel. In chapter, 20, sorry, chapter 22 of Ezekiel, in chapter 24, the army of Babylon marches in and destroys the nation of Israel. Tens of thousands of people die. Tens of thousands of people are carried away in captivity. And the kingdom that David and Solomon ruled is destroyed. Because no one would stand in the gap. And church, today our society is reeling toward destruction Men and women walk around aimlessly with no moral compass, with no hope, with no idea, without being able to discern their left foot from their right foot. And I suggest to you that God has put you here at this time, in this place, at such a time as this, to raise up intercessors for the people around you, for your neighbors, for your friends, for your co-workers, your family, maybe some of our children. And God is calling us, calling men and women who will stand on a high view of sin, who will stand on a foundation of intimacy, and who will wrestle with Him for the souls of those around us who are doomed to destruction apart from that situation changing. But sometimes all it takes for the situation to change is one faithful man, one faithful woman to pray. And in this text, Moses models for us what that one 
faithful man can look like. He stands on a foundation, on, on a serious view of the severity of sin. He stands on a foundation of deep and beautiful intimacy with Almighty God, which is mind-boggling, but which is still given to him and offered to us. And he uses that to push, to pray. He stands as a faithful intercessor between God and man. But as we see at the end of the chapter, he is not sufficient. He is not enough. Would you read with me the last few verses? Moses said, please, verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he, the Lord, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, the Lord said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. And so we see that as high as Moses' view of sin was, as deep and beautiful as his intimacy with God was, that he could speak with God as a friend face to face, as bold as he could afford to be in prayer based on that intimacy, to push back and to receive what he begged for. Moses was still just a man. He was not enough. He could barely catch a glimpse of God, even though he longed for more. And though he acts as a faithful intercessor, a faithful mediator in this text, in this context, we know later on in, in Moses' account that he fails. And because of his sin, he is disqualified from entering the promised land. He dies outside of it, even though he longed for it for decades. Now he gets his true reward. He goes to be with the Lord. And that is by far greater. But the earthly reward, he misses out. He's disqualified because he's just a man like you and me. But what Moses points us to in this text is the need for more than just a man. The need for a true mediator between God and man. A need for which no man is worthy, for which no man is sufficient, but there is a sufficient mediator that God in his mercy has provided. And that is our fourth point this morning. The sufficiency of our Savior. He is enough. He is worthy. He is the true, lasting mediator between God and man who lives forever to intercede for us. Now, I've spoken a lot of this message to the church, but I don't know all of you. Maybe some of you are visiting here, and, and you don't belong to this church or to another church, and maybe you don't know Jesus, but you're exploring and you're curious. Or maybe you're listening at home, and you don't know Jesus, but you're exploring and you're curious. And this is so applicable to you as much as it is to me, as much as it is to us in this last point. Because friends, what, what God's word clearly teaches us in teaching us of the severity of sin, of God's wrath, his intense hatred for sin, 
is that all of us are sinners. You and me and every man who ever lived save one are sinners. We fall short. This is the testimony of God's word and the testimony of our consciences. But God in his mercy made a way for even sinners such as me to be reconciled to him. He came down to earth and lived a perfect life to show us his love, to show us in full measure his character, and then laid that life, that perfect life down on the cross to pay the price for your sin, for my sin. If I went with one of my kids to a proverbial china shop, do you remember the proverb, a bull in a china shop? My kids aren't bulls. But say I went to a china shop, and one of my kids, goofing around, knocked a display and, and knocked it over, and, and she felt really bad, or more realistically, he felt really bad. And all this china was ruined, and someone's livelihood was being affected. I mean, it's a kid, right? Might not have intended the evil that occurred. But the fact is, evil occurred, and justice must be served. The kid's not going to be thrown in jail. Probably I would pay, hopefully, for that china because I love that kid. But until that debt is paid, justice is not served. Your sin and my sin incur a debt of destruction. What we deserve is death, a debt we cannot pay. But God on that cross paid that debt he satisfied the justice of his holiness and because that debt has been paid he now freely offers forgiveness and restoration and redemption for anyone who will come to him in faith and make him their king and so friend if you are visiting here or if you are listening in and, and the Lord is drawing your heart. I suggest that it is no mistake that you are listening to this right now. Please come speak to any leader in this church after the service. Or email Pastor Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, at heritagegracechurch.ca. We would love to answer any questions you have to tell you more about this great and sufficient Savior and to introduce you to him. Moses, in this chapter, was a faithful mediator, but he was not enough. Jesus is enough. And so church, as we wind up for today, may we be remembered. May the Spirit take any truth that I have exposed in God's word and drive this into our heart. Sin is serious. And we cannot afford to grow complacent, to grow comfortable with sin in our lives. May God give us the fear that drives us to violence at the sin in our own heart and life. But there is grace to be found for all of us. And in that grace we are offered, if we will cultivate it, if we will nurture it, we are offered an intimacy that is beautiful that is greater than anything this world could offer in exchange. And if we will pursue that, then we are given access to the privilege of prayer that prevails. We are given access to prayer that is a wrestling with God that can change 
history. By the grace of God, may he make us people of prayer individually and corporately. May we be a people of prayer. I was so encouraged a couple of weeks ago when we had our first prayer meeting and the turnout was fantastic. So many of us were able to make it. I was so, my heart sang, may we not flag in this. May this be our priority. There is no greater ministry. There is no higher calling than to intercede with God for the souls of people in advancing his kingdom. And at times we will fail. And we are most certainly not sufficient. May we rest in the grace of a Savior who is sufficient, who is worthy who is our hope, our only hope, and who is coming soon to set all things in this broken world to right. He is coming soon. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we praise you for your word. It is It is astounding that you, holy God, would reveal yourself to us, clouded as our minds are by sin, as our lives are by the the fallout of sin in this broken world. Yet, Lord, what we see is so beautiful. We praise you for your mercy. We praise you for your glory. We praise you for the privilege of intercession that gets to reveal and display your mercy and glory to those around us. Oh, Lord. Make us a church that prays in increasing measure. Make us men and women who pray. Give us a hunger and thirst for intimacy with you, Lord. May we pursue this. May we cultivate and nurture it as the priority of our lives. Lord, give us victory over sin. Make us a holy people, your people. Oh, Lord. Walking in your judgments, we wait on you. Your renown and the glory of your name is the desire of our hearts. Be glorified in our lives. Be glorified in our church. Come soon, Lord Jesus. We wait for you. Amen.